This is the Physical Activity Researcher Podcast, a podcast for researchers of sedentary behavior, physical activity, and sports. Join for a relaxed dialogue about research design, practicalities, and, well, anything related to research. Learn from your fellow researchers useful and relevant information that does not fit into formal content and limited space of scientific publications. And here is your host, researcher and entrepreneur, Oli Tikkanen. Hi, this is Oli. You are listening to Expert Opinion. In this format, we are asking just one question from many experts and compiling the answers together. Questions we have in this format are mainly about the current trends, future perspectives, and what these experts find most interesting and exciting in a specific subject matter. We would love to hear your feedback and suggestions, so please feel free to suggest questions and also experts you would like to hear in this podcast series. We welcome any researcher to provide their opinion, non-dependent of academic title, age, gender, ethnicity, geographical location, or anything like that. You can either record your opinion on an existing theme or suggest a new theme to be included in the expert opinion series. So, if you are interested, please message us and we will provide you guidelines how you can record your answer. It's simple and can be done whenever you happen to have time. Also, I wanted to mention here that Physical Activity Researcher podcast is now available also on YouTube and Facebook. We are publishing episodes for preview before they are published elsewhere, so be sure to subscribe and follow this podcast also on YouTube and Facebook. YouTube also provides automatic subtitles on every language, providing possibility for more people to learn from great experts of this podcast. So if you know any people who might find this feature useful, we would appreciate you sharing this information with them. Question of this expert opinion episode is, what are the most interesting advances in qualitative research in sport and physical activity science? And in this episode, we have three experts, Dr. Francesca Champ from Liverpool, John Morse University, Dr. Gareth Wiltshire from Loughborough University, and Dr. Javier Monforte. We will hear, for example, about something called creative nonfiction that can provide deeper and more emotional understanding of a topic. And we will also hear future predictions of qualitative data analysis possibilities with big data. And let's hear now what experts have to say, starting with Dr. Champ. Hi, my name is Dr. Francesca Champ, and I'm currently a lecturer in psychology of football at Liverpool John Moores University. My interest and passion for qualitative research methods really started to take a foothold when I was studying for my postgraduate degree. And I started to learn about how alternative qual methods could help us to illuminate or better understand the experiences and identity of marginalised individuals, particularly in elite level sport. 
So my um, PhD research project was a practitioner researcher consultancy where I explored applied sports psychology practice in elite level professional football. And currently my research interests include organisational cultural psychology, identity and athlete development and professional training and educational development pathways. I think it's super interesting and super exciting to see the journey of qualitative research methods, particularly across the last decade, and therefore the opportunities that this might open up for the next decade and even beyond. When we think about it, there's perceptions are changing towards qualitative research. People are now starting to celebrate qualitative research methods, and we're starting to look beyond semi-structured or structured interviews and thematic analysis. It's now looking at how storytelling, confessional tales, autoethnography, ethnographic research methods, narratives can be used to illuminate the experiences of those in physical activity, in sport, at grassroots recreational and elite level. And it was only really just over a decade ago in 2009 that QRSEH was developed. And if we look at the movement and progression of the journal, and then in 2020, that the International Society of Sport and Exercise or Qualitative Research in Sport and Exercise was introduced as part of QRSEH. And I think these in advances are demonstrating that individuals and groups of academics are now dedicating themselves to the development of qualitative research. Conducting research in a range of disciplines with different methods, epistemologies and ontologies to further the field, to further our understanding of athletes, of stakeholders, of organisations, of clubs and governing bodies to better the experiences of everybody within sporting settings. And I think we've stopped fighting so much and stopped expending so much time and energy on the right to be viewed as equal to quantitative methods. I think this is now starting to come in itself. The high quality and high impact qualitative publications out there are talking for themselves. Rigour is no longer as much of a question as it was. Rather, we're now developing our own and more appropriate methods, of measures of research quality. And through this, we're starting to see that qualitative research, as with any type of research, has the potential to be high impact and should actually be judged as so. So as I noted, there's been a movement beyond the use of traditional qualitative methods in sport and physical activity. And researchers are actually now starting to be more and more creative in the sport disciplines. And these creative methods are becoming embraced by researchers and emb embraced by reviewers. So... I guess one area that I'm going to talk about today that I think I'm particularly passionate about and that is quite close to my heart due to the nature of my research project or my PhD project is the opportunity for qualitative research to help bridge the gap between research and applied practice. So I think one of the barriers or the real barriers that we face in sport and physical activity is that applied practitioners out there are doing fantastic work fantastic work in sporting or physical activity settings and we have academic researchers that are conducting outstanding research project but there seems to be a real glitch and that glitch means that research often isn't translating to practice to the extent that it needs to. Of course applied publications are shaping the way in which practitioners do things but not truly to the extent that there is no gap between research and applied practice and I think the same can be said for 
good methods of practice or areas of improvement. Applied practitioners are picking up on them, but they're not necessarily reaching academic publications. So there seems to be two different strands and two different bodies of work that are doing really good work and having really good outputs, but arguably they're not working with each other to facilitate or to better the field of sport and physical activity. And in sport, I think unquestionably, particularly within the sport and exercise science field, there's growing opportunities for practitioner researchers. And what that means is individuals to be embedded longitudinally within sporting environments, whether that's at grassroots, recreational or elite level in sport and physical activity, with the opportunity to conduct research whilst engaging in applied practice. And I think it's particularly these opportunities that lend themselves to qualitative research methods, whether that be ethnography or action research methods. It's exploratory work that aims to better illuminate little understood contexts or sub-sporting worlds. And the implications of that might be better practice. And if we're practicing better, we might be more able to look after the well-being um, psychological well-being, physical well-being, emotional well-being of all of those stakeholders within sport or physical activity environments. And I think it's through qualitative research methods that we can start to attend to the intricacies of working in sporting environments, whether this be at a cultural level, a political level, or at the identity of those within sport and physical activity settings. The opportunity for practitioner researchers to not only collect data, longitudinal data, using in-depth qualitative research methods across a significant period of time, might allow them to A, identify methods of best practice, B, to explore the perceptions of a range of different stakeholders, C, to then critically discuss current practice methods, and finally, then perhaps reflect on their own experiences of being a practitioner in a physical activity or a sporting setting. And I think this is what might shape and facilitate the development of future applied practitioners or future academic researchers. And that we start to get a flavour of what it's like in the real world and what some of the challenges that these dual methods might throw up. Through this holistic understanding um, through a multidisciplinary and multi-stakeholder lens, I think our experiences on our advan- our understandings of sport and physical activity would be significantly advanced. I think that's kind of all from me for today, but hopefully, um, so that's all from me today. I hope you've gained a little bit of an insight into what I'm passionate about and what I think qualitative research can do for sport and physical activity in the coming years. Thank you. Hi, my name is Gareth Wiltshire. Uh, I'm a lecturer at Loughborough University in the UK. And in my opinion, the most interesting advances in qualitative research in sport and physical activity science are across two areas. So the first is exploring what the philosophy of science means for qualitative research. And the second is uh, somewhat relatedly is uh, developing a view of qualitative research that can be coherently integrated with other methods, so typically quantitative-oriented data collection, analysis, and methodologies. So on the philosophy of science side, for me, I think qualitative research um, and the advances that we can make in qualitative research are well linked to conversations and debates about the philosophy of science in general.
And by that, I mean less about thinking about the empirical techniques that we use in qualitative research, um, but more about the key concepts. So thinking through validity, thinking through generalizability, objectivity, confidence, even truth. Maybe our intentions when we do research as well. So like, are we uh, hypothesis testing or are we generating new theories? Also, what forms of reasoning are we using to come to conclusions in qualitative research, like deductive thinking or inductive thinking, or even abductive and retroductive thinking. Um, also, what we're we looking for when we're doing research, are we looking for causation, are we looking for descriptive regularities and patterns, and also things like hierarchies of evidence that are considered kind of legitimate aspects of scientific knowledges, like um, the evidence-based model, case studies, anecdotes. So all these things are kind of philosophy of science ideas, and I think they're really, really important for thinking through qualitative research. But it's well documented that in a lot of these discussions, there's a kind of historical context to, to think about where qualitative research was long seen as being less scientific and less like proper research and some would um, say that it still is it still is considered that way um, i think this is mirrored in distinctions between the natural sciences and the social sciences with the social sciences being less prestigious perhaps and being taken less seriously across university campuses as well as in popular culture more broadly and it seems to me that in response to this marginalization or not being taken as seriously Qualitative research has increasingly adopted a, a position over the last 30 years or so where uh, the, and, and this position claims that qualitative research should be taken seriously, of course, but almost in a completely different way. Um, so it's been argued that qualitative research is grounded in different philosophical principles, has a different paradigm or worldview as its underpinning basis. And it appears to me that this view has led to fault lines being drawn on almost all of the key issues in philosophy of science. So I've read that qualitative researchers believe in multiple truths and that quantitative researchers believe in a single version of truth or that qualitative researchers are um, inductive thinkers. They do, they do inductive work, whereas quantitative researchers do yeah, deduction. Also that qualitative People don't see researcher bias as a problem, but quantitative researchers do. And the list goes on. Obviously, I'm paraphrasing and perhaps oversimplifying a little bit, but this is certainly uh, the, 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 the fault lines and the associations. Um, I think it would, would be incorrect to, to ignore that they, that they exist at all. So I feel like this is problematic. Um, so given that we often tackle the same research areas, and increasingly we're working across disciplines. Um, and the lines between natural sciences and the social sciences are being blurred as well. So for example, between nature and the body and consciousness and matter, mental health and physical health. So uh, these, these kind of distinctions I think are, are becoming more blurred in the questions that we ask and the research that we do. And I think that should be reflected um, in the methodologies that we use as well. So even more broadly, we ostensibly live on the same planet and our uh, societies, economies, politics are intimately 
connected. So I don't think a good starting point is to rigidly assign or, or even loosely associate the kinds of philosophy of science distinctions that I'm talking about based on whether uh, you decide to interview someone or analyze texts as in qualitative research or whether you decide to use a Likert scale questionnaire or maybe conduct an experiment and measure some um, measurable characteristics. So while I personally, and of course I'm not the only person, um, and by no means is this a new idea, um, but while I think these distinctions can be broken down, I think there's a lot of work to do both conceptually and also pedagogically, maybe linguistically and culturally as well within our research communities. And I think these sort of advances and, and changes and developments in qualitative research are really exciting and interesting for me, and certainly an, an area of interest that I'll be looking to work towards over the next few years. This comes on to this, my second point, and um, this is where I think the ground should be laid um, for uh, the, the development of in, an integrative approach to qualitative research. And by integrative, I mean where uh, qualitative and quantitative methods are seen as you know, equally valuable parts of the same knowledge building project. So in physical activity research, it's now very common to see process evaluations, qualitative process evaluations as part of randomized controlled trials, for example. Um, maybe if you're looking at uh, school physical activity and interventions, for example. And this is the kind of progress and the kind of integration that I'm talking about is certainly very welcome. Similarly, in medical research in the UK, the funding programs, for example, often insist on involving patients uh, throughout the research process using focus groups and workshops. So these are qualitative aspects that are integrated within um, more broadly um, seen as uh, trials, for example, which, which, which uh, uh, would traditionally focus on quantitative measures and, and outcomes. But I think the development and the advances in this area would now be asking whether qualitative research can also be used in more um, integrative ways, not as an add-on, but you know, seriously including them within discussions about can they tell us something about outcomes? Can they tell us something about causes? Can qualitative research catch new and unexpected insights in, in a way that the qualitative, uh, quantitative methods cannot? So qualitative research is also about cap you know is about capturing what people say so we're talking about um, interviews then but also capturing the less tangible things that people might feel and sense so in my view this is actually far more accurate and, and closer to reality you can get closer to that um, to that reality we're using um, qualitative methods um, and in some cases far more close more more close to that reality than, than, than quantitative methods can. So I don't think they're very replaceable, actually. I think they're the best methods methods to, to, to get at those kind of nitty-gritty, deeper insights that are really, really useful to explain things. And uh, I think explain is a good word. So I think these insights are really important for um, explaining why things happen and why things don't happen that you might expect or hope to happen within physical activity research. So there are, are, of course, many other really interesting advances in qualitative research. Um, and over the next decade, I think we'll see some evolutions and maybe some more dramatic developments. 
particularly in the digital space, maybe as we move towards open science and big data. But also we increasingly, you know, work in a more interdisciplinary and post-disciplinary research environment. And we can also support movements like precision medicine, patient experience research, public involvement, social justice goals even, and a number of other contemporary trends. So it's certainly an exciting time to be doing qualitative researches, and I'm um, looking forward to hearing what other people have said in this podcast as well. Hi, this is Dr. Javier Monforte, a member of the Early Career Researchers Committee and the International Society of Qualitative Research in Sport and Exercise. In my opinion, one of the most interesting advances in qualitative research in sport and physical activity sciences has been the use of literary techniques to produce and communicate scientific evidence. Today, we know that scientific evidence is important, but not sufficient in most cases to persuade on its own. For instance, uh, evidence indicates that the use of steroids, uh, steroids or drugs harms uh, the physical and psychological health of adolescent athletes. But currently, adolescent athletes report more positive attitudes towards doping, show higher levels of uh, moral disengagement towards doping and perceive higher approval of doping abuse by other people. Why? Uh, so one key reason is that people do not actually make decisions or process information based on only scientific evidence. The best evidence, the best science alone, cannot drive people's thoughts and actions. Their personal beliefs and emotional understandings of the world also play a powerful role. Relatedly, people often find conventional qualitative research boring and accessible with all that technical language and methodological patterns. Let's be honest, for those who are not passionate about qualitative research, reading a qualitative report is rarely moving. Then, the question is, how can we, as qualitative researchers, how can we reach the emotions and beliefs or of, of readers? Um, how can we deliver scientific information and uh, evidence-based recommendations in a way that that is readable, uh, credible, and interesting. Well, so one possibility is to think of ourselves, to recognize of ourselves as storytellers and not just scientists. So it's called the, the call to adopting the role of the researcher as storyteller. It's not new. Um, in 2002, Andrew Sparks published a book uh, entitled Telling Tales in Sport and Physical Activity, A Qualitative Journey. And in my opinion, this book was a landmark in the history of qualitative research in sport and physical activity. In, in the book, Sparks introduced uh, us readers to uh, the potential of stories to enhance the uh, persuasiveness of the communication of scientific evidence. Basically, he Sparks argued that, that good stories enable or, or better put, have the potential to enable readers to understand the world and themselves better than they did before and they even animate them, uh, those people, to act differently. But what what's exactly a story? What, what distinguishes stories from uh, other forms of discourse, such as, for example, um, 
chronicles, technical accounts, uh, laws, instructions, or reports. Some some theorists argue that argue that stories are uh, defined by two elements, uh, which are a sequence and consequent. So in stories, events are selected, are organized, connected, and uh, evaluated as meaningful for an audience. And this basic definition is useful. But other narrative theorists, such as, for example, um, Arthur Frank, prefer to recognize stories by the work they perform, that is, their, their capacities for action. For example, um, by this I mean that good, good stories have the capacity to arouse imagination, uh, they have the capacity to make life dramatic, they have the capacity to present the world from the perspective of a character, they can take the form of obje objects and spaces, and they affect what people are able to see as uh, good and bad, as worth doing, or best avoided. I like this view. We are interested in, in stories, not for their structural uh, characteristics, for what they are, but for what they are able to do, and also for what we people are able to do with them. So, having made this uh, I think interesting and necessary theoretical points. Let's let's now imagine uh, that we are qualitative qualitative researchers that we have conducted an ethnography or we have conducted some interviews or participant observation. We have data. We have a lot of information that will become valuable evidence to inform practice. You know, we want to connect with wide audiences. We and, and to do that, to connect with wide audiences, uh, we consider presenting our results in the form of a story, a story that, as, as we know, can inspire change. Um, this story will be factual in content, right? In content, like uh, the content of it will be based on, will be grounded in empirical evidence, but it will be fictional in form. It will be represented within a fictional form of writing. To write this, this kind of story, writing this kind of story means engaging with a genre of scientific representation which uh, Sparks and others uh, called creative nonfiction. In a word, creative nonfiction tells a story using facts but uses many of the techniques of fiction for its compelling qualities and emotional um, vibrancy. So creating nonfiction doesn't just report facts, it delivers facts in ways that move the reader towards a deeper and an emotional understanding of a topic. So in order to write a compelling, evidence-based story, researchers make use of different literary techniques or conventions or tools, tools from fiction. For example, they may use a vernacular language, uh, dialogue, composite characters, metaphors, uh, allusions, flashbacks and flash forwards. Um, they can 
use tone shifts and so on and so forth. Um, but here it is crucial in creating nonfiction. It, it is crucial to mention that such techniques are not used to distort the truth. On the contrary, creating nonfiction is deeply committed to the truth. But which truth? Yeah, well, stories never resolve that question. Their function is to remind us that we have to live with complicated truths. And every qualitative researcher would agree or should agree that uh, elites, um, both elite elites and amateur elites, and other actors like such as uh, parents, coaches, um, referees, physical education, teachers and students, people doing um, active rehabilitation, people engaging in leisure in leisure time physical activity, in weight loss programs, and so on. So qualitative researchers would agree that these people live complicated truths. Yet, it's just a few, only a few researchers have chosen to use creating nonfiction as a way of representing their findings, their research on the lives of parents, athletes, coaches, etc. Given the time limit I have, uh, I will not make a list of contributions. Instead, I would like to recommend an example, a qualitative study using creating nonfiction. Uh, the name of the paper is, I quote, Sporting Spinal Core Injuries, Social Relations and Rehabilitation Narratives, an ethnographic creating nonfiction of becoming disabled through sport. I have selected this study uh, because it touches me personally. It addresses my research topic, uh, which is physical activity and its role in the process of becoming disabled. Also because the study was conducted by Brett Smith, which is a good friend of mine and, and an outstanding qualitative scholar who is responsible of many advances in qualitative research within but also beyond our field and including but not limited to the use of storytelling. But mo most importantly, I have chosen to spotlight this paper, not only because it's a good example, but because it includes responses or reactions that several readers shared with Brett, with the author. If we look at those responses, and this is very interesting, we can read in them some of the key benefits of transforming our qualitative research in evocative stories that show, rather than tell, complicated truths. One of these benefits is the high potential of stories to generate a naturalistic generalizability, which is a form of qualitative generalizability that uh, happens when the research resonates with the reader's personal experiences. Let me read one small extract from a response uh, of a reader who said, Thanks for your story about sport and spinal cord injury. Uh, I'm, I'm quoting, I quote, Thanks for your story about uh, sport and spinal cord injury. I'm not sure if you want a response from me, but I felt compelled to write one. When I got the story from a colleague and read it, I thought, a nice story and very accurate, but I was doubtful about it. This kind of research is unfamiliar to me, but after reading it again and some thinking, I thought it would be a very useful resource, and it is. Now, getting this kind of reaction is far from easy. It is not enough to write a, a good. Uh, uh, it's not enough to write a story, and that's all. The story must be good, must be high quality. And in this sense, um, let me add another recommendation. 
uh, which focuses on on uh, how to craft a good creative nonfiction and uh, how we can judge, judge these uh, formats in terms of its quality. Uh, it is a book chapter that uh, Smith, McGannon and Williams wrote, and it's, it's entitled, if I remember well, Ethnographic Creative Nonfiction, and it's part of a book uh, called Ethnographies in Sport and Exercise uh, Research. Um, so to finish, uh, let me recap my answer. I think that one of most the most interesting uh, and relevant advances in qualitative research in sport and physical activity sciences has been the um, narrative turn and specifically the use of storytelling to uh, produce um, uh, high impact qualitative research. A research that is more human, that is fascinating, that is more accessible and memorable. Um, perhaps the kind of research that, that we need. Thanks for joining us this week on Physical Activity Research Through Podcast. If you like the show, make sure you never miss an episode by subscribing or following the show on Twitter. This podcast is made possible by listeners like you. Thank you for your support. If you found value in the show, we would really appreciate a rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever app you use. Or if you would, in a real old school way, simply tell a friend about the show. It would be a great help for us. We have a fantastic lineup of guests for forthcoming episodes, so be sure to tune in. Thank you all for your support and have a great day.